0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter one. Uh, Mark chapter one, as I said, if you don't have a Bible, we have them available in the back, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, then you actually are in the right place, because uh, I'm, I'm just going to give you a, a super quick uh, int- orientation to how to how to use this thing, and and uh, basically you're gonna you're gonna turn to the Gospel of Mark, and if if you need to use the table of contents, that's fine. It is the second book in the New Testament. And you're going to see a bunch of big numbers throughout uh, the, this this book, this this Gospel of Mark. Sixteen big numbers because there are sixteen chapters. So the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the little numbers are the verse numbers. So this morning we're gonna, uh, I'm not going to be flipping around a ton. We're going to be uh, camping out in chapter one, and we're going to be looking at verses fourteen to twenty. So if you look at the little fourteen all the way to the little number twenty. That's what we're going to be studying. And frankly, this is not out of the ordinary. This is what we do every single week here at River City Baptist Church. We open and unleash the Word of God, and we basically just pick up where we left off. Uh, So I am making my way through the gospel according to Mark. And you may not realize, but there's actually a sermon uh, a, a sermon series title, um, this has appeared, I think, on social media. Jewel Evans has created some nice graphics. And the sermon series is titled, Jesus Immediately. Isn't that good? It's not original to me, but it's good. Uh, Jesus Immediately, because, like I said last week, the word translated immediately in English shows up 51 times in the New Testament, 41 of which occur in the gospel according to Mark. So this is a journey through Mark's gospel, uh, which is a way for us to encounter the person of Jesus. As I've said, it's the earliest of all four gospels that was written. Mark himself was not a disciple of Jesus, but he was a close associate of Peter, who was. So in many ways, the gospel of Mark is like the memoirs of Peter, and we are introduced to Peter, Mark's primary source in our story today. He goes, uh, initially at least, by the name of Simon. Well, Yeri read the passage for us. It's, a, it's kind of a meat and potatoes passage. I was thinking about this on the way over. The thing about expositional preaching, which just means uh, letting the Bible set the agenda for the content of sermons and for the life of the church, rather than taking our ideas and imposing them on the Bible or trying to find justification from the Bible to support what we want to talk about. Expositional preaching is just trusting God, uh, you know better than I do what these people need. So we're just going to march through passage after passage through your word. And as I was driving here, I just realized... Uh, not, not that i don 't like verses fourteen to twenty, far be it for me to say that, but there are some passages in the Bible where uh, it's it, it, they 're they're, they're complex there 's difficulty there uh, so it 's interesting to try to untie the knots. There are other passages that are that are uh, perhaps just kind of more obscure, and so you haven 't thought about them in a while, and so it can be interesting to to revisit them or, or even to explore them for the first time. Our passage today is super important this is not a statement about importance but it is meat and potatoes it's like we're going to eat at applebee's uh right now and we are just going to see and the reason i say it's meat and potatoes is because there's nothing particularly difficult about it there's nothing exotic about it there's nothing entertaining about it but it has packed within it some of the most important themes in all of the bible in just seven verses. So I have three points, but before I give you those, I'm gonna just kind of, because there's so much going on in in verses 14 to 20, because there are so many massive biblical themes, I wanna give you a main idea sentence. Uh, If you're not a note taker, become one for the next eight seconds, okay? Uh, A main idea sentence that will help you, and if I'm doing this correctly, uh, then the main idea that I'm giving you will also be the main idea of the passage because expositional preaching is trying to make the main idea of the message the main idea of the passage. And I think that the main idea of this passage is this. Because the kingdom of God has dawned in Christ, because the kingdom of God has dawned in Christ, we must turn to him in faith, follow him in obedience and bring others along because the kingdom of God has dawned in Christ. We must turn to him in faith, follow him in obedience and bring others along. So the three points uh, kind of arise right out of there. Number one, turn and trust me. These are the things Jesus is saying to us through this passage number one, turn and trust me. Number two, come and follow me. And number three, bring others to turn and trust me, come and follow me, bring others too. first turn and trust me. Look there at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Mark, in classic Mark style, doesn't indulge our curiosity with a lot of details about what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, He just kind of tells us the headline. After John was put in prison, and then he moves on, although... Mark will, in chapter 6, give us a flashback, and he'll give us a little bit more details about what actually happened to John the Baptist. But here, that's not his focus. What he's trying to do here is just give us a kind of time marker uh, to to help us know that we need to flip the page, as it were, because just as uh, John the Baptist's ministry abruptly ended, Jesus' public ministry is taking off. And it says Jesus went into Galilee, which means he's moved at some point from Nazareth, his hometown, into this region in northern Palestine, which will become, as we'll see in future weeks, the base of operations for his ministry. And what is that ministry? What is Jesus doing up there in Galilee? Well, Mark tells us he is proclaiming the good news of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. This is significant because we're still at the outset of this book, and Mark is wanting to make it crystal clear. He is going on record lest we miss it, just as he did in verse 1. Remember? Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, here he wants us to, be, to, to realize that Jesus is going to do, we're going to see Jesus in the pages of Mark's gospel doing lots of stuff, many wonderful things. But with the exception of his death and resurrection, there is one thing. That is preeminent, and it's the thing Mark tells us first. What is Jesus doing? Does it say in verse 14 that Jesus went into Galilee healing the sick? No, he didn't go into Galilee raising the lame, he didn't go into Galilee uh, trying to overthrow social structures run for political office, angle for worldly influence. No, he went into Galilee with one preeminent mission. Not his only mission, but a preeminent task, and that was to proclaim a message. And thankfully, we don't have to guess what that message was because that's verse 15. This is, this is John's shorthand summary of what Jesus was proclaiming. Verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There are two Greek words uh, that get translated in your Bible as the English word time. Two different Greek words that show up for you as one English word, time. Kronos and Kairos. Okay, chronos, and you can kind of hear our word chronology there. Chronos refers to the moment-by-moment passing of time. Kairos refers to a particular significant moment in time. It's kind of like the distinction between the words historical and historic. Historical just means anything that has happened in the past. Historic means a momentous event in history. And Mark is saying that after centuries, centuries, not just of need, but also longing, that the Israelites in their scriptures have been leaning toward this kairos, this moment, this decisive turning point in human history. Verse 15 is like the closest thing you're gonna find in your Bible to a press release from heaven. That's how it's functioning. This is what Jesus is on the scene to do and to proclaim. And it has everything to do, Jesus says, with the kingdom of God. This expression, kingdom of God, will occur 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first one. And it would have signaled to the original hearers uh, some, especially if they were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, it would have signaled God's reign over all things, especially the affairs of earth. In other words, kingdom is not so much... I, I have little daughters, so when I think of kingdom, I think of Elsa and you know, I think of a particular piece of real estate. I hear kingdom and I think geography. But in the Bible, kingdom is not so much about location as it is about power. God's kingdom is a statement not about geography, but about rule. And so a, a better word maybe to, to think about what the Bible means by kingdom is the word kingship. Jesus is saying the, the kingship of God has come near. And the reason he can say that, the reason he can say that is because he is the king. In other words, the, ki- the kingship, the kingdom of God has come near because you're staring at him. In me, Jesus is saying, a new day is dawning. In me, the never beginning, always existing, all powerful God of the, of the galaxies, the Lord of heaven and earth, is making a personal appearance on earth. And so Jesus is saying, my arrival and my authority are setting in motion a whole new order, a whole new way of being in the world. Now, of course, as we're going to see in coming weeks, this whole new order, this, this kingdom was badly misunderstood by his disciples and others because Jesus was the king they needed. He wasn't the king they wanted. They they wanted someone to come and launch a political revolution and overthrow Roman rule. See, the the Israelites largely read their scriptures assuming that the, the coming of the Messiah and the and in the, in the ending of sin, Satan, and death, the, the coming of the Messiah and the overthrow of their oppressors, the coming of the Messiah and the dawning of the new heavens and new earth would occur simultaneously. But God doesn't operate according to our expectations or our timeline. And, and God is bringing this about in two stages. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom, but not to Consummate it. And this is so important to understand if you're going to be able to read your Bible and track with what's going on, because there is a tension in the pages of your New Testament in particular that you are not meant to explain away, but you are meant to embrace and live within. And that tension is that we are living in the time between the times, the the now but not yet. Where Jesus says, Come once to save, but he will come again to judge and to make all things new. Israel expected one coming and for it all to happen at once, but Jesus is on the scene to say, and that's why my my main idea sentence said, the kingdom of God has dawned in Christ. We don't have it in full yet, but we've been given an appetizer, a foretaste of what is to come in Christ and that's what he was proclaiming in Galilee. And by the way, the kingdom he's bringing, I mean, you might compare what I just described, like the two-stage, present dimension, future dimension, now, not yet, uh, this overlap of the ages, the time between the times that we're inhabiting, and you may think, well, that um, that's inferior <laughs> to what Israel was expecting. Wouldn't it have been better if he had just... Uh, overthrown Roman rule and gotten it all done with? Well, the answer, first of all, is no, because we wouldn't be here this morning uh, worshiping the Lord. But but also, uh, what Jesus did wasn't only more subversive the way he went about it, it was more miraculous, because he wasn't on the scene just to effect some surface-level changes in the halls of power. He was on the scene to radically reconfigure the halls in the rooms, and the closets, and the crannies of human hearts. That's why he's here. That's why he's on the scene, and he's preaching the gospel, Mark tells us. But of course, he is the content of his message in a way that I thankfully am not. Jesus is preaching the gospel, and he is the gospel, the good news of God. He pointed to himself, and we point to him. Well, the first half of verse 15, look there, I love seeing the top of your heads because that means you're not just taking my word for it. The first half of verse 15 is about what God has done. The second half is about what we must do. Jesus says in response, in response to the dawning of this new day, this new order, the inauguration of this kingdom, repent, therefore, And believe the good news. So so this Jesus is saying is is how you how that kingdom of God can become good news to a sinner. We would be, be misguided to assume that the announcement that the king is on the scene is good news for human beings. Because we are not on the king's side. We are not on the king's team. We are the rebels against his kingdom. And so to hear that the king has arrived and is launching a new order is actually bad news for those who are not right with that king. And so Jesus tells us how we can can get in to this kingdom. Not to be judged, but to be welcomed and accepted and embraced. These are the entrance requirements. And I love how the Bible just makes it so clear Jesus doesn't leave it up to us to figure out what steps we have to do, what things we have to accomplish, what pilgrimages or holy sites we have to visit. It's just so strikingly simple. It's just two things, really just one, if you look at it, two sides of the same coin, repent and believe. Repentance means turning away from something. Faith or belief means turning to something. I have to admit that as I've gotten to know Richmond, I have found myself on more than one occasion driving, not just on the wrong street, but on the wrong highway, all right? You know, I, I've been, I've been try- thinking I'm on, say, 64 West, but realizing somehow I got on 95 North, and so I'm like, oh no, and I don't, I don't even know enough to know how to get to 64, so I turn on the Apple Maps. And all of a sudden, the thing is like freaking out. And it's like, okay, you need to take the next exit and make a U-turn. You are going the wrong direction, and you didn't even realize it. Repentance is like that. Repentance is a moral and spiritual U-turn where we are going in one direction, and we think that we have it all figured out. And all of a sudden, Jesus crashes into our experience. He crashes in. To our sin our following after our own heart in the wrong direction, and he helps us realize you are headed for destruction you need to turn around, you need to make a u-turn that is what biblical repentance means it's a change of mind and it's an accompanying change of behavior but it's something that can that can happen in an instant because repentance is just it's just turning not just from your sin but turning to The Savior. As the the great Anglican Bishop uh, J.C. Ryle said, sin is being at peace, or when we're lost, we are at peace with our sin and at war with God. But at conversion, we become at peace with God, but at war with our sin. It's not, I mean... There is a war going on in your life, whether you're a Christian or not. The question is: is it a war with your maker or with your sin? Turning and trusting. Turning and trusting. That's what it means to repent and believe. And it's just it's not just a one-time thing that you do to kind of step foot into the kingdom. That's why when I prayed earlier that we would be marked by a clear gospel, I wasn't only talking about evangelistic rallies. The clear gospel is is not just what we need in order to get into the kingdom, it's what we need in order to live as kingdom citizens. The gospel is the good news that carries us along in the Christian life. It's been said that the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but the A2Z. And Christian growth is actually just one long exercise in not moving beyond the gospel, but moving ever deeper into it. That's what it means to be a church that is continually, in an ongoing way, obeying the words of our king in Mark 1 15, repenting and believing, turning and trusting. Oh, friends, hear me clearly. I say this from not my own authority. The, the, the Bible is clear about this. You can get to heaven without a lot of things. You can get to heaven without riches. You can get to heaven without education. You can get to heaven without a good family situation. You can get to heaven without health. You can get to heaven with pretty much everything the world holds dear. But you cannot get to heaven without repentance and faith. If you've never turned away from your sin and put your trust, your reliance in Jesus Christ, then the good news that I have for you is that you can just do it right now. The entire trajectory of your life could be changed in a moment. That's how simple it is. And Jesus' method of expanding his kingdom is summoning people to follow him. That's number two. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Look there at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Perhaps some of you have visited the Sea of Galilee. I got to do it a decade ago. Listen, it's pretty generous to call it a sea. It's basically a glorified lake. Uh, it's like eight miles by thirteen miles at the farthest points, and in the in ancient Palestine, uh, it was a hub for the fishing industry. There were thirty or so towns that dotted the uh, the, the borders of the lake that were uh, that that were fishing. Uh, hubs. And just picture the scene for a second, because I think that sometimes when we read passages like this, the characters can be just kind of frozen in time, like they're on the old felt board from Sunday school. And they just don't seem real. They seem almost uh, mythical to us. But this wasn't a a, a mythical scene. This was an ordinary day in ancient Galilee, along the uh, and along the shores of the lake there, there there was all kinds of sights and smells and sounds you You would have seen the the hustle and bustle you would have heard the commotion of commerce you would have smelled fish uh, you know the good smelling fish the bad smelling fish you would have you would have i 'm not going to make the joke about it being a fishy scene that you know fifth week i that, that's that 's terrible but it it was it was an environment in which you have a lot of blue-collar workers, it's busy, there's a lot going on here, and an ordinary-looking guy begins to approach one particular boat. He comes to this ordinary pair of brothers in verse 16, Simon, who later will be called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and then, in verses nineteen and twenty to James and John, so those are those are two pairs of brothers, four people total, three of whom interestingly become not only jesus's disciples but form his inner circle of three: Peter, James, and John. but my, the point is that Jesus is not swooping in from the sky. This is not a marvel movie; uh, he's just approaching these pairs of brothers and From what we can glean from John chapter 1, it seems like Jesus uh, already knew these guys, that, that they had had some kind of prior contact with them. So this is not just a stranger coming in, sight unseen. They would have been familiar with this kind of new rabbi on the scene, which is precisely what's unusual about it, because in ancient Judaism, rabbis never sought out students. Rabbis never recruited students. No, it was the pupils, the students, who had to apply, who had to interview, who had to seek out rabbis, much like Lily and Mary Christine among us are doing as high school seniors, right? They're applying to be accepted into certain colleges. Well, that's exactly what happened with pupils and rabbis in the first century. But this rabbi is different. He dares to flip the script because it's not only that rabbis never sought out students, but also the students' allegiance was to the law, to the Torah, not to the rabbi. But Jesus comes into the scene, and he is seeking out students, and their allegiance will be to him. Now, it it seems that when when Jesus says, come follow me here, that, that there was clearly a lot of unknown baked into that invitation. Now, I do think these brothers had some previous contact with Jesus, but when he arrived and he said, come follow me, there was still a lot they could not have known at this point. So much that would have been unclear. And you know, it's not that much different with us today. I mean, we have more to go on because we have a Bible. So in fact, it's it's really an embarrassment of riches in that sense that, that we kind of know exactly what we're being called to. But if, if you've walked by faith and not by sight for any period of time, you know that following Jesus is not a predictable thing. It's an exhilarating thing, precisely because Jesus often doesn't give us all the details that we want to know when he calls us to walk by faith. Jesus essentially just passes a contract across the table and says, write your name at the bottom. I'll fill in the details. It's not the way that we, we would always prefer to do things. But that's what's going on here on this ancient shoreside. And I think one application, by the way, if you are a skeptic or if you're um, just not, not, maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you even would consider yourself a Christian, but you've been wondering lately, you've been doubting lately, if you, if you actually know Christ, and maybe your hesitation is that you don't have all your answers, your questions answered. Maybe, maybe you feel like you can't follow Jesus because you still have some doubts. You still are wondering some things, big things, like problem of evil. How can a good and loving God, you know, permit suffering, Like, like big issues. Maybe that's not just an academic question for you either. Maybe you have walked through horrific pain and you struggle to think, how could God be real? How could Christianity be true? Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? You go down the line and it's so easy if you're not careful to actually give yourself an excuse to just delay, 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 to just kick the can down the road in the name of not knowing all the details, not having seen the whole contract, not being able to predict with exactness what your life is going to look like. We should take a lesson from the brothers in Mark chapter 1. You don't have to have all your questions answered in order to follow Jesus. In fact, all Jesus is saying is, come where I go, do what I do, and you will know me as you follow me. You will know me as you follow me. Turn and trust me. Come and follow me. And number three, bring others to. Bring others to. Unlike many holy books of other religions, the Bible Bible doesn't hover 20,000 feet in the air with a bunch of abstract, sweet-sounding dialogues and platitudes. No, the Bible comes to us in the earthiness of everyday life. So it's not surprising that Jesus uses these guys' vocation as a metaphor for their new calling. Come follow me, verse 17, and I will send you out to fish for people. I will send you out to fish for people. This is why I said it's kind of a meat and potatoes sermon, because they're they're just staring at us, are two of the most massive themes of the Christian life. Discipleship and evangelism. Come follow me. That's discipleship, and I will make you fish for people. That's evangelism. See, but notice that what Jesus calls us to do, we we are called to do for others. This is not just about discipleship, but if you'll permit me um, a technicality, uh, indulging a technicality, this is also about discipling. So discipleship is you following Jesus. Discipling is you helping someone else follow Jesus. And that principle comes to us out of this passage because we are called not just, we we don't just hear the words, come follow me. We're also called to go to others, younger believers in the faith. Doesn't mean younger by age, but just in maturity and say, come follow him with me. Come follow him with me. That's all discipling is. It's just helping someone else follow Jesus too. It's being deliberate with your days, intentional with your time, plotting ways to help do spiritual good, plotting ways to do spiritual good to another believer. And every one of you is qualified to do this if you are trusting in Jesus. If you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit within you, even if you're a youngish believer, you are qualified to help someone else grow in Christ. It doesn't have to be super spectacular, super programmed. I mean, I just have loved so far, it's been gratifying as the lead pastor of RCBC to see you all take initiative in discipling one another. Whether it's a women's book study or the women's Bible study or the men's Bible studies or the, uh, the, the Helms hosting a night, a, a, a read through of Mark night right before I started this sermon series where some of you gathered together and just read through the whole gospel of Mark from start to finish. Or Davis and Wanda Gooding having people over to pray for Ukraine. None of these things is scheduled by me. None of these things is programmed by the church. This is organic, life-on-life discipling, blooming in the soil of friendships. And that's what we want to see here at RCBC. Just that basic orientation, that basic posture of hearing the words of Jesus, come follow me, and finding someone else to come with you. Who can I bring along? Hey, can we follow Jesus together? I'm just going to give you guys 10 words, okay? 10 words to memorize if you want to be in some kind of discipling relationship with someone. Now, you hear, you hear that, uh, that, that category, discipling relationship, and you might think, oh my goodness, like I either have to be the, uh, the overstudy or the understudy. I have to be the, the rabbi or the pupil. No, oftentimes it's just getting together to encourage one another in Christ. And here are the 10 words. All of you can say them. If you don't know how to go about this, just just walk up to someone and say, would you like to meet up to read scripture together? You can tell I counted those when I was preparing. And I actually had the Bible and it was 11, so I made it scripture. Uh, Would you like to meet up to read scripture together? It's that simple. Every one of you could do that with someone at some point. Discipleship is you following Jesus. Discipling is bringing others to. But there's also an application for evangelism here because Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me. He also says, I'm sending you out To fish with the same passion and energy and investment that you were fishing for food. I want you to also fish for souls. And these words would have been heard against the backdrop of our scripture reading that Zane read earlier from Jeremiah 16. Except in that context, these people that are going to be fished out were going to be rescued right before judgment. Whereas Jesus is on the scene to work through us to fish people out, also to rescue them for judgment. But the difference is that it was bad news in Jeremiah's day. He was saying, you need to be fished out and brought to judgment. In Jesus' day, he's saying, you need to fish people out so that they are spared judgment. Also, it's interesting to, to think about this imagery of fishing because in the ancient world, what did the sea represent? The, the, the sea was not a place where you went with your family on vacation and got, you know uh, got a postcard. No, no. The sea was a, a, a scary place, a dangerous place. Even a, a lake like Galilee, the water itself would have represented things in that culture, such as disorder and chaos and coldness and darkness and death. And so what Jesus is saying by, "Hey, I'm going to send you out to fish for people." He's saying, I'm going to send you out to enact a change in realms. To use the language of Paul and Colossians or Peter and 1 Peter 2, I'm going to send you out to bring people, to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness, from that watery darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. But why also does he compare this to fishing? I mean, the most obvious reason is because he's talking to fishermen, okay? And, and I do think that there's something richly symbolic about the fact that he that that they will be about the work of drawing people out of the chaotic, dark um, reality of life without Christ. But I think he also uses this imagery just for a common sensical reason, and that's that fishing requires patience. Fishing requires intentionality. Fishing requires focus. Fishing requires staying power. And that's a good reminder for us because people rarely change in a moment. Now conversion happens in a moment, but we don't even always know when that moment is. People are complex. We can't microwave the kind of growth that we want to see in people. We can't can't custom engineer the kind of heart change that we want to see. People are changed slowly over the course of time in relationship. In fact, what Jesus literally says is, I will make you to become fishers of people. In other words, there's going to be a process here, a becoming Here And this is not something, by the way, that any of us can opt out of. If you think you have the gift of evangelism, praise God, it's a real gift. But just because you don't have the gift doesn't mean you don't have the duty. My friend Max Stiles puts it really well in his book titled, you ready for this scintillating title? Evangelism. Uh, He says, quote, In a culture of evangelism, there is an understanding that everyone is engaged. Have you ever heard someone say evangelism is not my gift? As if that excused him from sharing his faith? That's a kindergarten understanding of evangelism. All Christians are called to share Christ as a point of faithfulness, not gifting. Jesus didn't grab a bullhorn and invite the masses. He just walked up and summoned two specific pairs of brothers. The, 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 the lesson for you is, is not to become a, an evangelistic crusader and hold a, a rally of 20,000 people by this time next year. That's not your goal. Here's your goal. Who is one person in your day-to-day life that you could share the gospel with and at least invite to church if you can't quite get to the gospel conversation, but that you could be intentional about having a spiritual conversation with before April, 11 or 12 days from now. I'm not going to legislate that, but surely if time is short and uh, forever is a long time, and we never know when it will be too late, when Jesus will split the skies in return. I would challenge all of you to think about who is one person in your life that you could talk with about Christ before April. Well, how did Simon and Andrew respond? Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then Jesus keeps making his way down the shore. Now three of them, Jesus, Simon, and Andrew. Verses 19 to 20, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. (laughs) I wonder what Zebedee's reaction was to this. Uh, I mean, there must have been utter astonishment that he had built this likely lucrative fishing business to pass on to his sons, and what he must have been thinking here, I'm not sure. I do want to be clear, though. This this wasn't the last time these guys ever fished in their lives. God, though... Jesus was redeploying them with a new mission and a new purpose. Now, there are, I think, two ways that this story can get easily misapplied, all right? I really, as I was preparing the sermon, felt these two ditches, okay? Number one, the way to misapply the story, maybe you've heard something like this before, is, is to basically say this, and this will really preach, you know, this, but but this, this would be... Uh, This would be clumsy and unhelpful. And that is, look at these brothers and then look at how pathetic you are. I mean, these brothers had the courage to leave everything to follow Jesus. They left their professions. They left their families. What in the world are you doing with your little comfortable life? If you're going to obey this passage, then at the least, you need to start pursuing some kind of full-time ministry. At best, we would love to send you out as a missionary. If you really want to be on the varsity team in the kingdom of God, you need to leave it all and change your life tonight. Now, if Jesus were to physically appear to you in your job and tell you in your office and to tell you leave everything and follow him, you should listen to him and not to me. But because that's probably not going to happen, we are left with a little more mystery and a little bit more in the realm of wisdom than these brothers were on the shore side 2,000 years ago. See, it's not helpful when pastors or Christian voices imply that the best Christians, the really sold-out ones, must leave their secular job to really do something for Jesus. But what if God doesn't want you to get out of your job, but wants to give you a new purpose in your job. I mean, if think how foolish it would be if the application here was, okay, uh, Peter and uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John left the boat. So all of you, what's your boat? You need to leave your boat. Well, there are lost people on the boat too. And it's not even lost people that is the sole reason why you should stay in your, in your workplace it's, it's, it, it, or why you should likely stay. I'm not going to say should, but likely stay because you can honor God and work with excellence and bring a smile to his face even in something that is not explicitly a ministry environment. The point, as I said, is not that these men never fished again. It's that every time they did so from here on out, they were different men. Following Jesus is not a kind of one-size-fits-all endeavor. He is a king who hands out assignments and deployments, and they look different from person to person, even from season of life to season of life. But remember I said that there are two ways to misapply this story? The first is to read it in kind of that flat-footed, literalistic way. Manner and assume that we must do exactly what these brothers on the lakeshore does. But the other way to misapply it is to fail to consider, to ponder, whether you really do need to leave something behind. Something that you would feel, something that would sting, something that would cost you in order to more fully follow Jesus. I mean, maybe the application for you is... For some of you, maybe the application is that you should consider a, a career as a missionary overseas. We would love to send out as a launching pad people like arrows to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to places where it is desperately needed. So don't take my first potential misapplication and just say, oh, it's not, I, I'm good. Maybe God is challenging you through this passage, to do something different for his glory and his kingdom. So the two ditches, one would be sitting around waiting for a mystical call every day. The other would be not being open to the fact that he actually might be summoning you to radically change your life. And you know how you can know which you need? You know how you can know how Whether you ought to leave your job, whether you ought to go on the mission field, whether you ought to do something different for Jesus, you know by being a member of a church. You you know because of the, the wisdom of God's word, you know because of uh, the, the desires he's given you, the gifts he's given you that other people can see and affirm. And you know because wisdom is collective and he has put us in a family of people who can see our lives and give us the kind of input that we won't have if we're standing alone, staring in the bathroom mirror. In different people, obedience is going to look in different ways. Uh, I, when I stood up, at at our sending church in Louisville to give the announcement about this church plant. There was a girl who just happened to be visiting that night. She was not a member of our church. She just happened to be there. And she heard what I said and thought, I should probably do that. And she's here, Jen Flack. She moved to Richmond. She's a member of this church. Just boom, that's like, that's like Mark 1-ish. But for other people, it's, it's, more, it's more of a process. It, it, it may take months, years. And there are other people who obeyed the Lord by hearing my announcement and saying, that is absolutely not for me. But I, I'm going to care. I'm going to pray. I'm going to maybe even give to support them financially. All of us are given different roles to play in the kingdom, which, of course, we thought about a few weeks ago with... John the Baptist. Here at RCBC, the the bottom line is we don't want to make, we don't want to be people who just make decisions in a vacuum. We want to build a culture of letting others speak into our lives. Actually, letting is not a good word. Inviting others to speak into our lives, to help us see things that we might not. And these are people, friends, If they're members of your church, they have taken responsibility for your spiritual welfare. They want to see you succeed. But there is one scenario in which you do not have to wait for the advice of others. One scenario in which you don't need to get wisdom from other people here to know whether you should do it. And that is if you have yet to start following Jesus. His words are clear. There's no mystery there. It's not about, oh, is this sitting around? No, no. He's clear. Repent, believe, turn, and trust, and follow me. Well, in conclusion, the the first uh, recorded act, notice, is not an amazing sermon or a mighty miracle. It's a simple summons of the the first recorded act of Jesus's ministry is just the simple summons of four specific Galilean day laborers on an ancient shoreside. But I love that we serve a savior who hasn't called us to do anything that he has not first done himself. James and John left their father's boat. Jesus had left his father's home in heaven to come get us. As we sing in the the classic hymn, he left his father's home above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for oh my God, it found out me. Of course, there will be many other recorded acts. This is the first one, but many other acts recorded in his ministry. Remember how John the Baptist functioned as a forerunner? Well, he wasn't just a forerunner in terms of his message, but also his fate. Just as John the Baptist was arrested and imprisoned and ultimately killed, Jesus Christ would follow in his footsteps. After living the life that we're called to live, he would go and be killed by Roman executioners and pay the penalty that our sin deserves. But that wasn't the end of the story because three days later, he punched a hole through on the other side of that grave and he went out and he, and he rose from the dead. The king is on the scene to proclaim a message that will never fail and to inaugurate a kingdom that will never end. Let's turn and trust him Come and follow him and bring others too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you even for meat and potatoes passages. Uh, Lord, we we thank you that we were forced this morning to think about themes of the gospel and repentance and faith and discipleship and evangelism and faith and work and all these things, Lord, which for a preacher can be discouraging because it can just feel like a lot of moving parts. So Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here, that that you would, Holy Spirit, apply this message to their heart in a pointed and specific way and help us all to live in community for your glory, to follow you together until the day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.